Well, friends, it's good to be with you this morning in worship. My name is Adam. If we haven't met and I'm one of the pastors here, I also want to say hello and shout out everybody who's online right now or who will experience this person, this message, this person, this message later today or on our podcast or website throughout the week. In 1985, Joe Simpson and Simon Yates are, were two mountain climbers and they decided to summit the previously unclimbed west face of Sula Grande. This is a mountain in the range of the Andes Mountains in Peru. And in order to accomplish this feat, they would employ uh, uh, a rock climbing or mountain climbing technique known as the hanging belay. So they would tether each other together through a series of ropes and then one partner anchors into the ice or the rock. And that way they're secure in case their partner, who they're tied to, falls off, falls down. And then the partner climbs to the length of the rope, then they anchor in, and then the person beneath begins to climb as well. So that series continues over and over and over until they summit the face of the mountain. The, they made a documentary of their climb many years later. So what we're going to watch is a clip from the movie called Touching the Void, which I highly recommend. Check it out. I think we surprised ourselves at the speed. We got up the ice field, it was about a thousand foot, and got up to a point where the ice is running through rock bands and you've got vertical cascades. We started intricately climbing through these. The fact that you are tied to your partner means that you put an immense amount of trust in someone else's skill and ability. But at some point, you might be thinking, God's sake, Simon, don't fall here. For God's sake, don't fall here. The rope can be something that, rather than save your life, you kill you. If your mate falls off and all his gear rips out, you're dead. You're going to go with him. If you're going to do that sort of climbing, at some point you're going to have to rely wholly on your partner. Anybody else get the heebie-jeebies just watching that clip? Yes. Oh my gosh. So it may not be mountain climbing, may not be life or death on a mountain, but who do you rely on? How do you decide who to trust? It can feel as daunting as summoning a mountain to build trust with somebody, especially when you're starting from zero. Maybe you're a student and your teacher next year, you've, you've heard about their reputation and they're, they're a disciplinarian. Maybe you're starting a new job and you don't know anybody. You have few guarantees. Maybe you're new to a neighborhood and you meet a couple of neighbors who are asking a few too many questions right away. Maybe you're new to a church and it's like, okay, what are we gonna experience here? It's hard to build trust with folks. What does someone need to do to prove to us that they're trustworthy? That's what we're gonna be looking at today. Two weeks ago, we talked about what it means to trust in God. Last week, we talked about how to be a trustworthy person. And this week, we're going to focus in on what it takes to be trusting of other people. And what I hope we'll discover together as we study God's word is that the solution to being afraid is having a filter. 
Our scripture today comes from the book of Acts. That's short for Acts of the Apostles. The Apostles were people who personally knew and were sent into ministry by Jesus. That's what the word apostle means. It means sent ones. Acts is the story of what came next after Jesus ascended into heaven. This is early in the church's uh, existence. It's the, church, the early church is still in its infancy. And it's a movement, and it's a growing one, but it's just getting off the ground. The Pharisees were a group of Jewish officials that opposed Jesus. They clashed often. And a Jewish official named Saul is opposed to this new movement. He sees it as heretical. It's, it's not true. It's, it's the opposite. Jesus and the Pharisees, like I said, often clashed. And Saul is set on stamping out this upstart religion. In Acts 9, Saul has a miraculous encounter with God. He's struck blind and he stopped in his tracks when he hears a voice, the voice of Jesus say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And so God instructs another early follower of, of Jesus to bring Saul into the expanding circle of believers. This is Acts 9, 10 through 14. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answers. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias to come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. So Saul's reputation preceded him. They knew who he is. Earlier in chapter 9, we read that Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So it was Saul's mission to eliminate Christians. This term Christian didn't come about for many more years. And so the early Christians, like we would call them in the 21st century, in, in the mid-first century, they were known as followers of the way. We saw it there earlier in, in, in Acts 9. Saul opposes this way of Jesus, and he's ruthless in hunting people down to the point of throwing them in jail or in another place in the New Testament, we read that Saul actually approved of Christians being stoned to death. So when Ananias is told to go find Saul and bring him over to the house, I mean, this would be like us being asked to go invite Vladimir Putin to dinner, right? I mean, I'm not sure if we can quite wrap our minds around how ridiculous or difficult this would be for Ananias. What? This guy? That's who you want. And once again, we see that God chooses unlikely candidates to carry out God's purposes. That's a theme all throughout the Bible. And we see it again in Acts 9. But the Lord said to Ananias, verse 15 says, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. Now, if God gave instructions or uh, made decisions in ways that totally made sense to us, that wouldn't require very much trust, would it? It wouldn't require a whole lot of faith. Saul would be one of the first missionaries and arguably the greatest missionary in history. Saul was born a Jew within the Roman Empire. 
So he not only spoke Hebrew, but also Greek. He was uniquely qualified to take the good news of Jesus out beyond its original scope in and around Jerusalem and Israel and spread it throughout the world. If you were not a Jewish person, you were known as a Gentile. So Paul is uniquely qualified to be the missionary to the Gentiles. As a Roman citizen, he had rights and privileges uh, that most did not. And his ability to operate in both the Jewish and Gentile cultures, they're reflected in his name. Saul is his Hebrew name. You may know him more familiarly, is that a word, as Paul. And so a lot of times people will say, ah, he was struck blind by God. He had this amazing encounter and God changed his name. Well, his name didn't necessarily change. His crowd definitely did. Saul is his Hebrew name and that same name translated into Greek is Paul. God uses the persecutor of the faith to promote it. That's the kind of God we serve. That's the character of God. Paul would later write this, or Saul. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, again, Paul's title for himself, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. So Paul's saying, look, I know this doesn't make sense on paper, but that's why God chose me, to make an example of me, the worst of sinners. As 21st century readers, we have the advantage of seeing the whole story. We can have it all available to us. But Ananias and his fellow disciples, they didn't know any of that. They were leery of this Pharisee who's suddenly turned into an evangelist like an hour ago. When he, he is Saul, came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. They don't buy it. It's a trap, right? Like they don't, they don't, See how this could be God's plan. One of the reasons I believe the Bible is trustworthy is it doesn't gloss over ugly things like this. It doesn't just paint a rosy picture. Even the early church was far from perfect. Now the chapter before in Acts 8, it describes Saul beginning to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. And so now that Saul is in their house, the disciples are skeptical at best and afraid at worst. They had no idea that Saul would be the same person who would go on to pen the most books in the New Testament. No idea. Could have never have guessed it. They didn't know that the theology in Paul's letters would impact the world for thousands of years. All they saw was a guy they couldn't trust. And so what does it take to build trust with others? I learned about a model for trust while I was uh, taking a certification course through the Gallup Company, and it's been really beneficial. In 2001, authors David Meister, Charles Green, and Robert Galford, they wrote a book called The Trusted Advisor. Now, this is a book written for consultants on how to gain trust uh, with your clients. Chapter eight is called The Trust Equation, and I think this model is brilliant and it, while it is not necessarily Christian, I have found it to ring true. The trust equation is credibility plus reliability plus intimacy over self-orientation. Now, if that sounds like word soup, stick with me 
and we're going to look at each of these individually. These, these different components can function as filters by which we can kind of put our fear to the side and more wisely choose whether someone is trustworthy or not through these filters. The first component of the trust equation is credibility. This is probably the easiest aspect of trust to achieve because it's pretty objective. You can tell just by looking or listing most of the time. Does this person have expertise in their area? Are they credible? Have they put in the time and effort to gain experience and legitimacy? This is especially true when you're hiring someone and deciding whether you wanna be a customer or not. Uh, when I first moved to Kearney, I needed to find a place to get my hair cut. It's my best asset, right? And so I can say, I normally try and not call this stuff out, but they're closed now, so I can say, I know why. I went to Great Clips, and the person who cut my hair was very sweet, but they were very new. And no joke, no, I'm not exaggerating, they actually broke down crying in the middle of cutting my hair because of what they had done to it. Not what you want. And then they find out I'm a pastor, so I don't know if that was like more crying or less crying, I don't know. Oh boy. Again, not, not what you want. I, ha, I'm, I try not to be a picky person, but I don't necessarily want the person cutting my hair to have an emotional breakdown because my haircut was so bad, right? Now contrast that, so, so not, not good for credibility, right? Contrast that with an experience that my daughter recently had at a pediatric dentist. You ever been to one of those places? Man, they had thought of everything. Everything, the, the paint on the walls to when she like reclines and she's kind of nervous about, about the dentist looking at her. Oh, on the ceiling is a TV playing cartoons. Like they've thought of everything. Credible. The second component in the trust equation is reliability. And we talked last week about having a high say-do ratio and how we can prove our trustworthiness with people. We can think of reliability as consistency. It links words and deeds it, 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 it merges intention and actions. In the trusted advisor, the authors say that reliability is the repeated experience of expectations fulfilled. Now, I'm not gonna name the place because they are still open, but I went to get my oil changed here in town and then the next time I got it changed at a different place, they said the air filter was just like Roman free in the engine. Now, I don't know a lot about cars, I know that ain't good. When you get your oil changed, like, my expectation of reliability would be that you at least put all the stuff back, right? I don't think that's too picky, right? Not reliable. Compare that to one of my favorite places on the planet, Quick Trip. Who else, show of hands, who else will pass, like, 50 gas stations if you know there's a Quick Trip coming down the highway? That's right, that's right. I see you, brother, thank you. Right? <laughs> Every QT has high standards, man. I will pass them all up just to go to the beacon in the night off the highway because I know what I'm going to get. They're clean. They're going to have good iced tea. It's reliable. It's reliable. Now, more than just gas stations, when I think of reliability, I think of the principal at my children's school, Kearney Elementary. Mr. Masker is out at the crosswalk with his vest and his stop sign every single day, rain or shine. That's reliability. The third component in the trust equation is intimacy. I'm not talking about the section you try and avoid with your kids when you're walking by at Target, okay? Uh, that's the intimate section. This is not physical intimacy, this is emotional intimacy. The authors say that establishing intimacy is, is, is almost like a game, it's a back and forth, because you're raising the, the personalness, 
You're raising the stakes on the things you're willing to share with somebody. And one party offers information about themselves, and then you either uh, respond or you choose not to respond. This is about handling of sensitive information with tact and emotional intelligence. You ever been around an oversharer? That's that, then you've experienced too much intimacy in this equation. We hired someone once for my daughter's birthday, and by the end of it, I had heard all about their deadbeat ex-husband and their diverticulitis. <laughs> too much too soon, man. Too much intimacy. Don't overshare. I can be an overshare. It takes one to know one. I have to do that, by the way, when I'm giving you my little examples in sermons. There's a threshold that's appropriate. And if I share too much, you guys are like, ooh, ooh. Intimacy. Am I safe telling this person this information? What about this? You ever been around somebody that talks negatively or talks bad about somebody else? I don't know about you, but I think to myself, I wonder what they say about me when I'm not around. Suddenly, no trust. Nope. I'm not going to share anything with this person because I don't know who else they're going to share it with and when. Intimacy is about trusting someone with information. Sometimes at work, you don't want to say how you're really feeling because you don't know how that manager is going to wield that information on you. Intimacy. Finally, the denominator in the trust equation is a low self-orientation. And that's a fancy word. You know who had a low self-orientation? Jesus. Who said, I didn't come to be served, I came to serve. Is this person interested only in themselves? That'd be a high self-orientation. Or do they also have my best interests in mind? That's a low self-orientation. You ever been in a conversation with a one-upper, a story topper? My wife just audibly groaned. That's like her one pet peeve. You know if she's married to me, she's got to be a patient person. But man, if, you, if she meets somebody who's always got to have the last word, always got to top their story, your story, always got to bring it back to them, nope. High self-orientation. They're preoccupied with their own agenda. So here's the test. You're at a party, or maybe you're in the lobby at church. Hello? Making small talk with somebody. Does the person ever ask you a question about you? When you're having a conversation, do they tend to support what you're saying and ask you follow-up questions, or are they always steering it back to them? This will typically reveal a person's motives and whether it is chiefly their motive about them. I also want to say a word about the self-orientation of media. We need to be discerning of the motives behind what we're consuming, whether that's a news outlet or just information online. So many times, companies or commentators, friends, they're not in the information business, they're in the attention business, and there's a difference. We need to use discernment about the motives of the information we're consuming. So each component of the trust equation increases trust. Now, we typically don't just trust people with one or two of these because all four are important. And in this way, they act like filters. If we're, uh, if we're afraid or we're kind of nervous about who to trust, these four things can kind of help us decide whether someone is trustworthy or not. They all touch on different realms required for trust. When it's someone's credibility, right, it's like, are, are, can I trust what they say about 
X, Y, or Z. I can trust my child's pediatric dentist. Reliability is about actions. I can trust them to deliver on whatever it is you're talking about. Intimacy is really about emotions. I feel safe discussing this with this person. And then self-orientation is about the other person's motives. I can trust that they care about more than just themselves. What's their motivation? Friends, like scaling a mountain, trust can be risky. We may trust the wrong person in the wrong situation and get burned. We might get hurt, but it is also a risk to be cynical and to be isolated if we don't ever trust anyone. It's a real danger to be so afraid of losing that you never gain anything either. It's scary to trust, but the solution to being scared, to being afraid, is having a filter. I love the trust equation because there are multiple filters to think through and experience before we just give our trust over. And so when trust is required, ask yourself these questions. Is this person credible? Are they reliable? Is this intimate information safe? And is this person only about themselves? Friends, the ultimate source of, of filtration and discernment is the Holy Spirit. In Acts 9, we saw that the disciples were afraid of Saul because of his track record. We talked about that list last week. So he's got this new outlook on life, and they're not sure whether they can trust it or not. Right? Just days before, he had wanted them all dead. And now he's brought to them, saying that he's God's chosen person to carry this message out. They didn't receive Saul because they feared him. But one of them took a leap of trust, a bold step. In Acts 9.27, we read that Barnabas took Saul and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Barnabas had enough exposure to Saul to begin to trust him and his unlikely candidacy for God's work. The two of them would form a friendship and travel the world spreading the good news of Jesus. Friends, it's not an exaggeration to say that we are here today because Barnabas vouched for Saul. He took a leap of trust. Friends, we don't have to live in fear, never trusting anyone or anything. We can be open to new possibilities and put our trust in God's provision. And everybody said, amen. amen. Let's pray. God, thank you so much uh, for the example of your word, which doesn't sugarcoat everything and talks about how life really is. God, help us to be people who aren't naive or foolish and just go around trusting any old thing we hear, but rather help us to be people who are wise and who follow your lead. God, help us not to be afraid and have that be the reason that we don't ever try anything or trust anyone, but rather help us follow your spirit as it leads us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.